This is Mary Lewis with A Tiny Homestead, the podcast comprised entirely of conversations with homesteaders, cottage food producers, and crafters. Today I'm talking with Calvin at Fiddlehead Knob. Hi, Calvin. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Um, I have a question about the name of your place. How yeah. did you, you come up with Fiddlehead Knob? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a funny story. Um, so... Our farm is it. It's it used to be my wife Rachel's uh, great grandpa's farm. So her grandpa grew up here, um, and they were uh, dairy farmers way back in the day. Um, so the house has been in her family for uh, several generations. And um, when they uh, back in the day, they used to call when they what they say is they didn't have a pot to piss in. They would call it poverty knob. So. We kind of take took an adaptation of that, and uh, um, you know, because we're where we're geographically located to, we're kind of like on the only hill in our area, or our little knob, as we call it. Um, and it's a beautiful view from the top of our little little knob, and then you know, just the the fiddleheads and mushrooms always kind of coincide with each other. So um, we just kind of really liked that name, and had a little bit of family history behind it too. So. Um, yeah, kind of funny. Okay. Story, though. Can you can you tell people what fiddleheads are? I know what they are. I've actually eaten them, and I'm not a fan. But can you tell people what fiddleheads are? Yeah, there's so many different kinds, um, and you know, there's some that aren't edible, and some that are. the The most popular one that would be edible is an ostrich fern, um, and it's basically the fern, um, the baby fern, is what the fiddlehead is. Um, and man, there's some places in the U.S. I know there's a festival out in Maine. They have a whole like uh, uh, weekend dedicated to just eating and celebrating fiddleheads. Um, and uh, we really like them too because just like mushrooms, which is what we specialize in at our farm, um, they reproduce by dropping their spores um, and just letting their spores kind of catch in the wind and and then propagate elsewhere so um another kind of reason why we we chose that um as part of our name so Mm -hmm. okay good that's what i wanted to know because i've come across so many fun names for people's farms and businesses and every time somebody has an interesting one i'm like where did that come from yes (laughs) so um so tell me about what you do at fiddlehead knob yeah, so um, it's been um, a long time in the making. We've been, my wife and I um, and our two kids, uh, they're three and one, our two little girls, that we both live here um, and, and work here full-time on the farm. Um, and that was just as re- um, this spring we both went full-time. I, w- I was full-time last summer on the farm and um, and this summer, but she left her job this spring, which was pretty exciting and scary and nerve-wracking. But um we she left her farm so we could pick up an extra farmers market um and yeah so we on our little 10 acre homestead farm we grow um and produce gourmet mushrooms of all different kinds indoors and outdoors um we we try to do as much forest farming as we can with the, the woods that we have um we have a 30 by 30 shed that we grow in um and in that 30 by 30 shed, I have a, a grow room that I built, um, and it's less than 150 square feet. And in that small amount of space, I can grow up to 
300 pounds of mushrooms a week. Um, so it's pretty amazing to be able to, to grow that much food in such a small area um, and makes little impact. And then we do a lot of outdoor mushroom cultivation as well. Um, we have a large amount of shiitake logs that we do, um, and that's been a, a lot of fun doing those as well, using otherwise unused spaces. You know, we just use the shade of the trees for those, and um, and they're wonderful, delicious mushrooms. So awesome! Do you do you grow the ones inside in the winter time? Is it a full year of growing? It is. Yes. Um, yeah. And sometimes I wish we would just kind of slow down like most farmers, you know, in the fall, but it's, it's a lot of fun being able to provide fresh food, um, all through the winter. Um, because that's, that's local to, to our area, um, that you don't have to get it shipped in, um, from across the country. And, uh, that's, that's been really fun to do. And, and people seem to really love that. And, but again, it's, um, Sometimes we wish we we had a little bit more of a break, but you know, around the holidays we kind of try to take take it a little bit slower. Um, after all the holiday markets are done, um, you know, we're kind of kind of relaxing this week. So, um, but yeah, so we grow all year round. It's a heated shop that we have, um, and it it takes a lot of energy to run the grow room and all the things that it takes to keep it temperature and humidity controlled um, and a lot of energy to do that. And we were pretty proud this summer that we went full solar transition. So we are now a hundred percent solar powered farm. So how did that go for you with, with getting solar installed? It was, um, there was a lot of grant writing and grant research that we had to do um, luckily, we had a really awesome um, uh, local installer who helped us with the grants. He's done uh, numerous of the uh, the REAP grants, is what they're called. REAP um, is one of the federal grants out there for. Uh, it doesn't ha- have to be agriculture; it just has to be any small business um, that is in the United States. Um, you can apply for that grant and it's a 40% cost share. Um, and he helped us out, um, with that grant. Um, that one in, in particular, which was a long process, a lot of paperwork, you know, obviously, and, uh, but we wouldn't have been able to do our solar install without that grant. Um, that made it possible, which was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, solar is a fantastic way to make energy but it is not the least expensive way to do it when you're the one putting in the system right it's um but it you know for our our farm model with being an indoor farm where we're using a lot of that uh energy our energy consumption is quite high um it just really made sense so we really made a big effort to, to look at as many grants as we possibly could. Um, and, um, yeah, like I said, we, it wouldn't have been possible without it. And now that we are fully solar powered, it's just been amazing. Not being able to own our own power, um, and, and to think about the, our future too, um, of our growth and not have to worry about like, Oh, if we add on another grow room to meet demand, you know, am, am I going to be taking on an extra $200 a month in electric bills, you know? Um, so it really opens up, uh, our business for a lot more growth in the future too. So. Okay. So is that reap, 
a grant, is that an ongoing grant throughout the year or is there a deadline to sign up? I believe there's a deadline. Um, If I'm not mistaken, I want to say it was for now funded through, don't quote me on this, but if I remember right, it was like 2025, it was funded through. um, And you have to have, I believe it's in March is the deadline for the, um, and then it starts up again maybe January-ish. Okay. Um, so. Okay. Yeah. The, re- the reason I ask is we received a grant from um, the Market Entry Fund back mm. in November to build a heated greenhouse. And that's all well and good, and we can we can use the money to do that, but my husband keeps talking about using solar power to heat it. And mm-hmm. I was trying to find something where maybe we could get another grant to offset some of the costs of the solar. So yeah. I may have to look into that. Yeah. It's a really amazing um, one. And, and I don't know that we would have been able to do it ourselves without having the professional help of, again, our local installer who, who does tons of installs around our area for other um, bigger farmers and stuff like that. And he, he pretty much wrote the grant for us um, and did an amazing, amazing job um, at doing it and secured a lot of funds for us. And he secured a lot of funds for surrounding farmers as well. Um, so we were super grateful for that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so, okay. Questions about mushrooms because yeah. my my son wanted to try growing mushrooms and we bought one of the kits from Amazon and we followed directions and all that. And what we didn't take into account is the warmest spot in the house is our stairwell. Oh, and, yeah. and it was fine until we took it out of the bag and then all the dry air from the heating vent kind of ruined them. Yeah. So. It was a very pretty log with some really pretty mushrooms on it, but they were hard as a rock and inedible. So, oh, yeah. so you can't do that. It's got to be a, a, a warm, moist growing situation. Yes. 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 Um, and you know, a lot of times mushrooms are depending on the strain that you're working with. Um, a lot of them can be pretty forgiving in their environment. Again, you might not get the best looking crop, um, but you know, a lot of times like an oyster mushroom, which is one of the more common gourmet mushrooms out there, uh, because they're very easy to grow. It's super fast growing. Um, and again, very forgiving, even in a dry environment, it'll still grow. Like I said, it might not look very pretty, but, um, or taste very good, but those, those mushrooms want to, they want to grow. So, mm-hmm. um, and we do, uh, we sell a lot of our grow kits as well. That was a new product for us this year. Um, that we did our packaging and everything that we spent a lot of time, um, you know, how are we going to market our grow kits? Um, and so what we tell our customers and it says on our, we'd send our instructions with them, um, a great spot to put any grow kit, not just ours. Um, if you wanted to try growing at home, um, next to your kitchen sink, you know, especially in the winter when it's the dry, dry time of the year. Um, and your sink, next to your kitchen sink that's going to be about the most humid environment you could probably find in your house and you're there a lot you're you know the better you take care of it the better your mushrooms are going to look so um it's just a you know right next to the water fill up so you can 
fill up your spray bottle. You're spritzing it a few times a day. And, um, and then once, you know, after about 10 days, you have a, a beautiful cluster of mushrooms. You pop it off and cut it up right there. So. Okay. That's what I was curious about because, uh, he was so excited. We got him a kit for Christmas last year and he was like, yay, I can finally try doing this. And then they didn't do well at all. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we're going to be doing, I think this spring is we live on three acres and we have a tree line and, uh, we have a whole bunch of wood chips that we bought last summer. And we've put a whole bunch of wood chips out in the tree line. And my husband wants to try growing mushrooms out there. Yeah. And and it's shady. And if we yeah. get any, any rain, maybe we'll get mushrooms. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Use your woods to your advantage and grow food. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's the best thing you could do. And it helps the, the soil underneath. Um, it, it provides habitat. Uh, there's so many great benefits to it. Um and, you know, for your specific application, you know, a wine cap mushroom, um, that's, that's what we do in our woods. We've got wood chip beds all over the place. And, um, it's, it's a lot of fun walking through, through the woods and just finding your, the mushrooms that you cultivate and then, you know, take them inside, cook them up and, and have a feast. Well, I think he wants to sell them at the farmer's market because he, he sold our produce from our garden last year at the farmer's sure. market in Lesore, And, he was like, we have this tree line and we have great black raspberries, but there's not enough black raspberries to, to sell. And they're, they're very time intensive to, to pick and right. get to people because they don't stay good for more than a day right. unless you get them sold and into a refrigerator. So, so he was like, what can we do with the tree line? And he and my son are very into YouTube. So they went out and looked up things you could do what you could grow in a tree line in minnesota and they both decided that mushrooms seem to be the thing they want to try this year so so i was very excited to find you and ask you to be on the podcast because i figured i could pick your brain and educate everybody who listens to the podcast (laughs) yeah absolutely and that's such a great that's why one of the reasons i love mushrooms too is they they add an extra layer for any home gardener um even if you have one raised bed it doesn't matter what you have you could have just a potted plant on your porch, you could grow mushrooms on that understory layer of that plant um, and they're going to benefit each other. Um, and you've just used your space efficiently. You know, when you do put mushrooms underneath, say your tomato plants, um, it acts as a weed suppressant. It brings nutrients into the soil that would otherwise not be there. Um, and you're adding an extra layer of food. So you're, you're really getting a lot more out of your, your space there. So what kind of mushrooms would we do if we did that? Um, a lot of times those wood chip beds, the most popular one would be the, um, the garden giant King's Trafaria mushroom. Um, there's the wine cap is probably the most common name for it. Gorgeous burgundy colored caps. Um, and they're very meaty, uh, and they can get huge. Um, I mean, bigger than my head. They could, I've seen some really, really big, um, which is a lot of fun to grow because it's like they, they can grow really fast. So, um, you know, you might go to bed one night and come back out the next morning and it's doubled in size. Um, so especially for kids, that's a lot of fun to see that, you know, because sometimes it's hard to be hard to have the patience to watch a plant grow. But with mushrooms, it's like it, it's insanely fast. 
Yeah, and especially with the wild ones that come up out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, a couple months ago, maybe September, was it September that we all finally got rain? Um, I think it was September. We have where an old tree was taken down two years ago, a maple tree. And mm-hmm. we'd had no rain for months. You know, you're in Minnesota, yep. you know, last summer yep. was like. <laughs> and uh, we had nothing growing other than dry grass and then it rained for three or four days straight and on the fourth day it finally stopped raining and went outside and there were all these little light brown mushrooms in little circles near that those wood chips and I was like man I wish I knew what those were or I knew somebody who could tell me what they were so if we knew we could eat them because they they were beautiful but I I don't think they were edible. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard. There's there's so many. I get a lot of those questions about the. You're pretty. They're they're very common. You know, yard lawn mushrooms, the little white ones, or there's you know some skinny stems and big like brown capped ones, and um, you know, well, I am a very good forager and uh, identification expert on the edible mushrooms. There's. Um, and some of the non-edible ones, some of those yard mushrooms, there's just so many different variations of them and they can be hard to identify. Um, so unless it's in the, uh, you know, the, one of the more common ones that the yard mushrooms I tend to stay away from. I mean, I love looking at them. They're gorgeous and it's a great sign of good soil health because you've got mycelium underneath Mm -hmm. in the area. So. And while we're talking about identifying and not being able to identify mushrooms, let's just let's just do a blanket statement here to everybody. If you don't know what the mushroom is, do not eat it. That's right. <laughs> or you can always take a picture and send it to me and I'd be happy to identify it for you. Yeah. Find um, find find someone who knows what they're doing to right. tell you that it will not kill you. So Yes. And if you really want to know, I, you know, there's lots of books out there and it's a lot of fun learning about, uh, this, the, about mushrooms. It's kind of how I started with my whole mushroom journey was, I was curious one day about what this beautiful mushroom was that I saw and I bought a book and went down the rabbit hole. And here we are today with full-time full-blown mushroom farm. So that's, but that's fantastic. That's great. Um, we stumbled across us, I think it's called a skull cap mushroom Oh yeah. on our hiking travels back many years ago when we weren't in our fifties. And, uh, my kid that still lives with us was probably 10 and he, he says, uh, he says, that's a mushroom. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's a mushroom. And he said, it's really ugly. And I was like, mm, ugly <laughs> is in ugly, just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but right. I <laughs> I probably would not take that home to cook it up. And he said, why? And I said, because I think it's a skullcap and I think that they're poisonous and I don't know enough about this. So we're going to just leave it right where it grew. It's it's going to grow where it's planted and we're going to leave it be. Take a picture of it and appreciate it later. That's the, the best yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah. It just, it, it looked evil. I was like, that's probably not a good one to eat. We're not doing that. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's definitely some some mushrooms you don't want to uh, you don't want to mess with out there. You know, there's but there's a lot of mushrooms um, that are very easily identifiable that are delicious. Um, some of the the something you wouldn't find in a grocery store, that's for sure. So, 
Yeah, we found um, morels in on one of our walks, and none of us enjoy them. We're not really into into them. Yeah. And I mentioned it to my neighbor who lived right next door, and she was like, "Where? Where is it?" Yeah. And I told her, and she said, "I'm going tomorrow." Yeah. And and I said, "Why?" And she said, "Because I love them. I want to go pick them and and fry them up and eat them." I was like, "Do you have at it? Here's exactly yeah. what they are." <laughs> so yeah, I. I grew up real picky. I was a very picky child when it came to food and I was not a mushroom fan. And the, oh, yeah. only, the only mushrooms that I actually like at this point are the baby Bellas, which you get at any grocery store. And oh, yeah. I think the only reason that I like them is because they're kind of like nutty flavored when you fry them with stuff. Yep. And so I'm not anywhere near a mushroom connoisseur. I, I'm not really into it, but I am so curious about how it all works. Yeah, so. and, you know, I've got a lot of a lot of customers who actually, um, they're not the same boat as you, you know, not ever really been into mushrooms, um, but have really enjoyed learning about the benefits, um, not just their, the the for culinary purposes, you know, there's a, a lot of medicinal purposes that mushrooms have, um, and just the, all the different types. And, you know, you don't have to, uh, necessarily cook the mushroom and eat it that way to get those benefits. You know, there's, um, there's powders, there's tinctures, there's, um, you know, they've got mushroom coffee now. Um, there's so many different ways that you can use mushrooms to your benefit, even if you don't like them and you can, you know, ingest those things without any mushroom taste at all, um, mm -hmm. or texture, which is that, that's the thing that mushrooms usually, you know, if you don't like them, it's usually like it's the texture of them is what I get the most at markets, um, yep. that people have a hard time with. So, yeah, if, if they mush, I don't like them. I think that's why yeah. I like, the, I think that's why I like the baby Bellas because they, they actually have a chew to them. Yeah. But the uh, the morels, my neighbor brought some over, and she was like, "You have to at least try it." And I was like, "Okay." And she had deep fried them, and I wasn't into deep frying either, so that didn't work very well. And yeah. bit into it, and it was mush, and I was just like, "I, I cannot do this. I'm sorry." And <laughs> spit it into a napkin, and she was like, "What is wrong?" And I said, "Number one, you deep fried it." I said, number two, it's mushy. I said, I, I can't handle it. I said, have at it. Enjoy it. I'm glad you like them, but I can't do it. She, yeah. informed, she informed me on the spot that I was weird, and I said, what was your first clue? <laughs> yeah, you don't, I mean, most people that I've ever thought, you know, it's like the morels. That's like the top prize of the mushroom mm -hmm. world. Um, but it's pretty amazing, you know, the the amount of, the varying textures and tastes that are out there in the mushroom world. I mean, we've got one that we grow. Uh, and I've actually had some people that, um, you know, do not like mushrooms, don't even touch the ones in the grocery store. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it's like husband and wife. One of the one of them doesn't like them and one of them does and they never get to eat them because one of them doesn't. Um, yep. It might be a texture, it might be a smell, whatever. Um, but We've had, I've had a couple people that have tried our lion's mane mushroom, which if you're not familiar with that one, it's a toothed mushroom. It doesn't have gills, um, like your, your, your common mushroom would. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of different style or types of mushrooms. So, you know, there's pores and gills and, and teeth. Um, but this, uh, the particular one in lion's mane, it has, um, 
teeth on it and it's um it's kind of hard to describe without showing you a picture but anyways it's it's a really super unique texture and flavor um the when you peel it apart you can picture like you would be peeling string cheese it kind of peels away like that um Mm -hmm. and we've actually made it has a sort of a crab and lobster like texture and taste to it um and we put it in crab cakes before and in, in place of using crab and it's honestly hard to even tell that you're eating a mushroom and i've had some customers that you know they were just like i never knew that i could eat mushrooms in this way and you know and now they come back every week and get lion's mane um because it's set super unique texture and and flavor that um that's different from what they you know that they'd known their whole life which a lot of people it's the you know the baby bellas and the white button mushrooms so uh or, been or a the, lot of fun educating people on that yeah or the canned mushrooms no no right yeah mushrooms <laughs> it does not go well don't can mushrooms um <laughs> so so um I know that there are people who go out and forage for mushrooms. And I keep hearing that people take mesh bags to collect the mushrooms because as they're walking back out of the woods, it spreads the spores from the mushrooms that they harvested. Is that correct? It is. Yes. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the, it's pretty amazing if you were to put a, you know, how they drop their spores um, you know, you put a mushroom under a microscope and you see all the little hyphae that shoot out the spores, um, with such force. They want to, you know, just latch on everything. And there's tiny, tiny little things that are just sticky little spores that, um, when you have that mesh bag, it just kind of spreads them out. And, um, hopefully they come back. It might not be for 10 years until it can get an established mycelial network there. But, um, that's always a good practice when foraging with mushrooms to let them, uh, drop their spores still after you've collected them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And always leaving a little bit for the next person too. Uh, that's a good practice. If you are foraging, um, you know, I always, you know, if you find a big cluster of chicken of the woods or something, you know, uh, you know, take a little bit, leave the rest of it for somebody else who maybe wants to find it or for it to drop its spores so it can, it can find another log to grow on. As with everything, leave it better than you found it. Right. Yep. So you guys started doing this when? I thought I saw 2017 on your website. Yes. 2017 was the official, like, we created our business. um, And we had just moved back, uh, my wife and I, from North Carolina. We had lived out there um, for a couple of years. And I worked on an organic and biodynamic farm out there and learned a lot about organic farming and that was just more so vegetables and animals out there that we did and i started a little mushroom enterprise for them at their farm and um and before we even went down there my wife and i um when we uh when we were getting before we even got married it was always our dream to have a a farm and what that looked like was always kind of morphing into different things as we, you know, grew and, and figured out what we wanted to do and what we didn't want to do. Um, and then, you know, it ended up being mushrooms just because, um, it was, we didn't necessarily want to do vegetable farming. Um, it was a lot of fun, but it just wasn't for us. Um, and 
the mushroom farming really kind of stuck out to us and because we love going on hikes we love foraging and gathering wild food um and that so it all just sort of made sense for us to and then when we finally started it in 2017 we were in our basement at our home now growing which is where a lot of growers start um and we made a lot of mistakes um (laughs) and you know we learned a lot obviously from those mistakes too and then we ended up when covid just before covid started we it just wasn't really working out. So we were kind of like, okay, we're going to stop for a little bit, reassess, keep kind of doing it on a hobby scale. Um, and then I had worked carpentry for a few years and, um, and got a lot of great skills through that and then built up this entire um, system in our shed outside. I insulated it, um, got plumbing installed, installed a heater and, um, and we have a lab, we've got incubation chamber and a nice fruiting uh, uh, chamber, commercial refrigeration. And so I, I was able to build all this. And then we, we kind of relaunched, I would say, um, last spring. Um, of and, and that that was, it just kind of sort of took off. You know, we took all the mistakes that we had made and we're like, we're not going to do this again. This is like got to happen this time and um it's been amazing so far um it's growing faster than we can sometimes keep up with it seems like so well that's a problem to have i i will yeah (laughs) um i swear covid was the worst thing that i think my generation has experienced because my husband and i are both 54 yeah but i also feel like it was one of the best things to happen to the world because everyone had a chance to stop stop yeah. and breathe and realize that the world was not ending but it might actually be restarting on a different plane i guess yeah. and that sounds very new agey and very esoteric and that's not me at all but everyone i have well almost everyone i've talked to for this podcast so far a lot of them, the things that they're doing are COVID babies or they're things that they were doing before, but COVID allowed them time to grow them. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of, you know, it, it definitely hit small businesses really hard and, and um, a lot of people had to adapt and um, in so many different ways that you'd never thought you would have to do. And, um, you know, and I know for some it didn't, you know, there, there's a, plenty of people that it was uh, detrimental to their business. And some people you were, you know, it, it wasn't so much. And you kind of were able to adapt a business model around that. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we, we definitely reassessed our entire situation during, during COVID as well. And where we wanted to see ourselves, our farm in, in five years and allowed us to definitely slow things down and, and look at the future from from a different lens so yeah yeah it it was it was really really hard but it had some some real benefits and it seems really strange to say that but it did yeah we moved we moved in august of 2020 to our homestead from being in town and part of the reason we did it is because it was so hard being surrounded by people but not being able to really be around people 
Right. And we had decided years ago that if we had the opportunity to buy land with a house on it, we would do it. And it just so happened that 2020 was when we had that opportunity. Yeah. And the first thing I did when we got the keys to the place was I just sat down on the steps of the house and looked around and listened. And it was so quiet. Yeah. And it would have been quiet anyway, because it was pretty much the summer after COVID hit. But it just, it was so different than being in our little town, our little house in a little town. Yeah. And we, my husband gardens, he will always garden until he cannot, until he physically cannot garden, he will have a garden. And the first thing he did that winter, because we moved in August, so there was no garden for 2020. And first thing he did that winter when there was time is he sat down and started mapping out the the quarter acre garden that he wanted to do. <laughs> and now it's almost half an acre garden in oh, yeah. <laughs> two two summers. This will be our third summer gardening, I think. So yeah, it's COVID. I I swear every time I say COVID, I say a bad word in front of it when I'm referring to that time frame. Because it was so much sad and pain for people. Yeah. <laughs> but for us, it was just an opportunity to jump. It was a, it was the time to go. So. Yeah, the, the kind of same same thing for us. You know, we our closest neighbor out here is a mile away, so it was always kind of quiet for us out here, and um, so that that part didn't change for us by any means. But you know, seeing family and friends and. Obviously, mm-hmm. that was that was a hard thing for everybody. Um, so, yeah, but yeah. Hopefully, we don't have to go through that again. <laughs> I am very concerned about what the next apocalypse is, and I think it's going to be a lot noisier than COVID was. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. Um, so, I have I have specific questions about your operation. Sure. When you started it. Did you start growing mushrooms outside and inside, or did you grow mushrooms outside and build the the inside part up as you were working? Yeah, so when we, I had, in the basement when we first started, um, the substrate I was using to grow on was straw, um, which it works well. Um, You know, I would never discourage anybody from growing a straw, because it can be a readily available substrate to use um but it's when you're trying to do it on a commercial operation or trying to get to a commercial status it's definitely not viable um it was what we had readily available um and it's but it's so messy and (laughs) um you know i'd be tracking straw through the house all the time uh, which is no fun and um and then we tried a couple of different grow rooms. Again, I was just kind of like trying things out. Um, you know, I think I had tried to kind of reinvent the wheel a little bit too much and kind of fell flat on my face with that. But, you know, I, again, I learned a lot um, of, of things about grow room mechanics and airflow because it's a really fine dance that you have to play um, with mushrooms um, because of the they put off a lot of CO2. Um, so if you get too much CO2, um, your mushrooms end up having too much. They'll be basically a really long stem and a really tiny cap, which if you're selling to chefs, that's not what they want. 
they yeah. want a nice large caps, small stem. Um, and so one of those things can get out of whack if you don't have enough air moving out of the grow room and your CO2 gets high, then that's what's going to happen to your mushrooms. And it can happen within a matter of eight hours if you don't catch it. Um, so there was a lot of, lot of trial and error with those things and, you know, getting your humidity right um, and working through the seasons as well, because, you know, in the summertime, we have a 1920s farmhouse. Our basement was naturally kind of humid anyways. Um, and so you would have to adjust for that. And it's, uh, and it's also warmer. So then your mushrooms are growing a lot faster. And if they grow too fast, then they drop their spores everywhere. And it's a mess to clean. And so there's a lot of, lot of those things happening. And we, we had learned a ton. And, and uh, then when we stopped that, um, and I started working as a carpenter where I built, I built a lot of houses around here, I've done a lot of pole sheds for farmers and um, indoor, kind of did it all. Um, and so learned a lot about the trade um, through that. And then all the while we were kind of just planning for the next, like we knew we weren't going to be in the basement anymore. We needed to be out into our garage that was already built as just kind of an outer shell. And that was it. Um, so then I had taken a few months and really put in a lot of time, a lot of late nights working out in the shop to get it all insulated. I put a new steel roof on, like I said, we put a gas heater out here, um, and, and really, made it so we could run a viable business in here and, and, uh, built up my grow rooms, um, with the knowledge that I had before about airflow and how to make sure that you're, you don't have any dead zones in your grow room where, you know, say if you put a block down there, um, it might not grow because there sometimes if you get a corner of, uh, in the room where air gets trapped and doesn't move, um, it just becomes stagnant and then you end up with contamination. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it and um, that can really change your operation too on a dime, especially with like the CO2 or say if you get a bad batch that gets contaminated, you have to throw it out and that sets you back a long ways. Um, so, uh, but now, yeah, we're in the shed um, and we grow on sawdust and soybean hulls that are pelletized. So it's a much cleaner way to go about doing it instead of having to use straw. So that's been really nice. Um, and we're doing other experiments with like um, hemp hulls and uh, with kind of growing industry there. We're, we're doing some experiments with different nutrient sources um, and stuff like that too. So, Okay. So what is your why for this? Because I always say when, when people say, what's your podcast? I say it's conversations with... Um, homesteaders and cottage food producers and crafters and it's and when I talk to the people I'm going to interview they're like is there a script and I'm like no it's just a conversation it's what do you do how do you do it and why why do you do it so what's your why oh yeah there's there's a lot of different reasons you know and right now um, it I would say my why is my for my own true passion is of growing food and and um doing something unique and, and a lot of fun. That's um, a lot of problem solving for it. But I would say 
you know, providing for my family. You know, we've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and um, it's always been our dream to raise our children on a, a homestead and um, and really put the focus on what we, our food and the things that we do outside with each other and being able to be at home with my family every day and, um, and have them, have them here has just been, uh, uh, a beautiful motivation for the growth of our farm. Um, and, you know, we also really love, uh, local food, um, just anything local food, the people that are involved in it, the community, aspect of it. Um, we meet so many people through the different, uh, farmers markets and different farmers that are doing amazing things, getting to collaborate with different chefs and other farmers, um, and, and getting to talk to people such as yourself that are promoting, uh, small businesses. And it's, it's been a, a really wonderful journey. And, and this seems like it's just the beginning still. So yeah, and you're younger than we are, so you have more years. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, and honestly, this this podcast started because uh I needed I needed a baby. I needed something to take care of because yeah. because my husband does the gardens. We have a dog who is basically our fifth child, but she's now 3 and she's turned out to be fantastic and pretty well behaved, so there's not there's not a whole lot of keeping an eye on her now. Unlike yeah. when she was eight weeks and tried to eat everything in my house, including my house. <laughs> um, I just, I needed something to do, something creative to do. And we are trying to do homesteading here. And I feel like people don't understand that homesteading is not, number one, it's not crazy. Number two, it's not something that, that only certain people can do. And so... I want to know how other people are doing homesteading and cottage food producing and crafting falls under homesteading. So I was like, I need to find people who are homesteading or crafting or cooking because that's what I want to know about. What are people doing? Because there's this homesteading movement that we keep hearing about. But people have been homesteading since humans became humans. Right. And, you know, there's so many different versions of what a homestead can be, um, you know, with land access being what it is. That's a lot. You know, I think people could look at homesteading and see like, oh, that looks amazing. But how am I ever going to afford land to be able to do that and move mm -hmm. out of the city where I'm away from all the resources? But and you, you could be in an apartment and still be a, a, a type of a homesteader and grow vertically. There's so many people that are just going vertical with their food and um and it's a lot of fun it's a science to figure out and you know it's get to solve problems and and feed yourself at the same time um and we've been noticing a lot more vertical farms popping up um because again you can grow so much food in such a small amount of space um it seems to really make sense for a lot of people yeah we lived on a tenth of an acre lot before we moved here and we had a three-bedroom, one-bath home on that lot and a four-car garage. So there was not a lot of open space to grow. Right. And my husband got um, iris and lily bulbs from his mom's place when she was selling her place. 
and we put them in front of our house in the little tiny patch and under our bedroom windows between the sidewalk and our house. And he had so much fun doing that that he was like, I think we should rip up the backyard and put in a vegetable garden. And I said, okay. And back then I, I helped, you know, I don't help now because I'm not, I don't love gardening, but I helped then. Mm-hmm. And uh, he loves it. He absolutely loves gardening. So I'm all for him doing it. But we ended up growing some, a couple of squash plants the second year and they went everywhere. Two squash plants took over the whole backyard. And I said, is there any way to grow them up, not out? So he built some trellis trellises and we grew butternut squashes up, not out. Oh yeah. And our neighbors were like, well, how are the, how is the plant going to support the squash? Cause those are heavy. And I said, they grow stems big enough to support them. And they yeah. did. <laughs> and by the fifth or sixth year we were growing squash, we were pulling in 30, 40 squash from four or five plants that were growing up. Right. And they were, they were huge. They were a good foot and a half long and a good nine inches around the base on butternut yeah. squash. And our neighbors thought that we had lost our minds when we did this. And then they saw what we were doing. And by the time, like two years before we moved, a lot of our neighbors were starting to do gardening in their backyards on their, I don't know, quarter acre lots. So we feel like maybe we had a little influence or maybe they just decided to do it. But yeah, there you go. We want to believe that, that they saw us do it and went, hey, if it works for them. Yeah. It's but yeah, grow, growing up is fantastic it because is. you can you can fit so much more in. We do our cucumbers up. We do our squashes up. We have raised beds for our potatoes so that we can keep adding dirt to it so they keep making more potatoes. It's it's pretty fantastic. I I yeah. love I love how we do this because who knew that if you added more dirt to the potato plants they would produce more potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weird. So, anyway, I try to keep these a half an hour but they're starting to run into 45 minutes to an hour long. Um I really really appreciate you talking with me. I was so excited to find you because I was like I need to I need to narrow down on things and next week I get to talk to or yeah, next week I get to talk to a lady who keeps bees, keeps honeybees. Awesome. So, yeah, mushrooms, honeybees. I talked to a lady who does maple syrup um a week or so ago. And I'm trying I'm trying really hard to find specific subjects instead of just oh, you homestead, you have cows, you have goats, you have a garden. Yeah. And that's fine too, but I think that that we learn more when we talk to people who are drilling down on one thing. Yeah, sure. So, but thank yeah, you so much. I really Calvin. enjoyed our talk. Thank you. All right, you have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye.